You're listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The One True King, based on the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, recorded on Sunday, December 9th, 2018. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. Well, uh, this week our nation said goodbye to one of her presidents. And there's a, there's a picture that's gotten a lot of attention coming out of uh, President Bush's funeral that maybe you've seen, or if you haven't seen it, I'm sure you'll be able to, to picture it here along with us. It's a, it's a picture of what they're calling President Row. And it's a picture of all of the, the current, uh, or all of the living uh, former presidents lined up together for uh, President Bush's funeral. And the reason it's getting so much attention is because you, you can see the tension between the people sitting in that row. I mean, here's what is a very unique fraternity uh, of men. And yet, I mean, just watching them, just watching them uh, be together and, and just all of the tension and difficulty between them. And, and there were some smiles and some pleasantries exchanged. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's kind of an awkward place for them all to be. Well, I bring that up because 1 Samuel 16 is kind of the presidential row of the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to see here together in this, in this chapter the three leading characters of the book of 1 Samuel. You have Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel, is, he's, he was the leader of Israel at one time. He kind of led as a judge slash prophet slash priest. He had, he had many roles as the leader of Israel. But then, of course, there's this outcry among the people for a king. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. They wanted, they wanted, to, have, they wanted to have this prestigious person lead them as king. They were getting a little bit discontent with how God had chosen to lead them. And so God grants them their king, and he gives them Saul. And so Saul is like the second main character of this book. And we see Saul, he starts out pretty well. He does some things right, but just like the people who asked for him, he eventually becomes discontent with God's way of leading his people. He takes matters into his own hands. He does some things that were offensive to the Lord, and and then God rejects him. And that's what we've seen over the last couple of chapters. It's sort of this, uh, this idea of God rejecting Saul as king. And now we're introduced to the third leader, David. And there's this stark contrast between David and Saul. And then there's this sort of awkward role where Samuel, who had anointed Saul as king, is now being asked to go and anoint another king. And by the way, Saul is still the king. So we have, that's kind of, that's kind of brings us up to our, our passage today. Our passage today starts with Samuel being upset about Saul and God comes to him to give him new instructions. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel is learning an important lesson. In fact, there's, there's three things today that I want to point out from this passage. The first one that you'll see there on your map is this. 
This is the lesson that God wants Samuel to learn. God is the one true king who always sits on the throne. God is the one true king who always sits on the throne. That's the lesson that God is presenting Samuel with. Samuel's distressed. He's upset. He's grieving. He's disappointed with what he sees happening in what we're going to call the visible realm. Everything that he can see has gone awry. God had graciously given the people what they asked for. He's given them this king, this man Saul. And for a, for a period of time, things go well through this king Saul. But now Saul has sinned against the Lord. And Samuel's upset. He cares about Israel. He's concerned about this nation. He cares about the will of the Lord and he is discouraged that Saul has disobeyed. And even that Saul has led the nation astray. And I think it's safe to say he cares about Saul too. This was a friend of his. This was someone that he had some, I say, very meaningful interactions with in life. And so he's upset, and I think those are all good reasons to be upset. I don't think there's on the surface anything wrong with Samuel being upset here. These are good reasons to grieve. He's seen the effects of sin playing out in front of him among people whom he loves, among the nation that he is a part of. And so, so I, I, I'm kind of thinking, may, you know, maybe his grieving, grieving is, is just the kind of godly grieving that we sometimes experience over the sin of others. Maybe he's just upset over sin. Or perhaps... His grieving is faithless grieving. Maybe he's, he's thinking, well, that's it. God had a plan, but Saul screwed it up. It's over. How could anything good ever happen after this? How quickly we get there, where we get to this point where we, we thought something good was going to happen, and then sin enters in and disrupts the plan, and, and we quickly become overwhelmed and think, well, how is God's will going to be accomplished now? I don't know. I don't know which it is with Samuel. I think, you know, God speaks very early in this chapter, and we, you could read God's question with different tones. He comes and he says, how long will you grieve over Saul? Maybe that's, maybe that's a rebuke. Maybe it's like, how long? How long are you going to grieve over Saul? Enough already. Or maybe it's more like a, compassionate, merciful, how much longer? How much longer are, are you going to let this bother you? Don't you know that I have a plan? Whichever, whichever it is, regardless of God's tone here, the point that God wants to make with Samuel is that it is now time to move on. And there comes a time in our grieving over the sins of others when it's time just to move on when it's time to get on with what God is doing next, when it's time to forget the past and move forward into the future with faith and confidence that God is still in control. As upset as Samuel is, God comes and tells him that he has a greater plan. God says to Samuel, I have provided for myself a king. I love those words from this chapter. I have provided for myself a king. 
Can I point out here that there's a beautiful comfort in understanding the way kings and presidents and leaders work. There's a beautiful comfort in understanding the way that all of the rulers of this world are actually appointed. And here's how it works. This is how the system is set up. There is a good and powerful and sovereign ruler over this whole universe. And he has a plan, and he executes his plan by installing leaders into the various positions of leadership among men. That's how this whole thing works. You've got God who created all of this. You've got God who's in charge and who's the sovereign ruler over his creation. And he only gives power to men according to his will. There's a great comfort in that. There's a great comfort in knowing that no matter who sits on the thrones that we see, that there's really only one true king, and he always sits on the throne. Romans 13 verse 1 tells it to us this way. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. You see, here's the point. God's not sweating this Saul thing. He can put a new man on the throne before breakfast if he wants to. He's in control. He has a plan. He is the one true king who sits on the throne. So he comes to Samuel, and he wants to teach him this important lesson. He says, I know you're upset about Saul. I know you're concerned over the fate of this nation, but I have chosen for myself a king. Perhaps to see this a little more clearly, let's look at Isaiah chapter 6 together. Very familiar passage of Scripture probably for a lot of us. But I think it's worth taking a minute to look at this. Because in in Isaiah chapter 6, we have a very similar situation. The prophet Isaiah finds himself in a position kind of like Samuel's in 1 Samuel 16. He's, He's in this transition between kings. Isaiah 6 starts out, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now let's just pause there for a second. King Uzziah, ironically, is not all that different than King Saul. He did some good things. He started off pretty good, but eventually, just like Saul, he becomes discontent with God's way of ruling over his people, and he takes some matters into his own hands, and he sins against the Lord. And he actually spends the latter part of his life with leprosy, And watches his son rule in his place because of his sins against the Lord. But in the year that King Uzziah died, here is Isaiah. In this this moment of transition in his nation. In this moment of of wondering what's next. What's the next king going to be like? Is he going to lead us to God or is he going to lead us away from God? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
at this time of national uncertainty in Israel. At this time during which all of the people are asking themselves the same question, what's next? We had a king. He did okay. He led us in the ways of the Lord some, but he kind of turned away from the Lord and we saw the Lord's hand of judgment against him, but now he's dead. You see, I think as, as 21st century Americans, we, we have a, a predictable process. Well, somewhat predictable. I, th- I think the last cycle was a little bit unpredictable. But we have this predictable process of, of determining the next president. But for the nation of Israel, it wasn't nearly as predictable. They, they didn't know what to expect. And sometimes you, you get a king and that guy, he, he, would, he would rule as king for decades And he might have been a good king or he might have been a bad king, but there really wasn't a whole lot that you could do about it. And so these were times of of national anxiety. And God reveals something very important to Isaiah in that time of transition. He reveals himself. And he shows Isaiah that he is the one true king who always sits on the throne. And Isaiah sees God in all of his glory. He says he saw him high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. That's a sign of his glory. And, and, and these, these angels are around him, or these, these, these creatures that live to worship are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. You see, most kings have have their glory, let's say, in very limited time and space. Isaiah sees the one true king, and his glory fills the whole earth. There aren't any other kingdoms except for this kingdom. There aren't any other kings except for this king. And Isaiah sees that, and it changes him. I want to get to his response in a second, but I just want to, I just want to stop and, and think about how, how, what this might mean for us, because I think we live in a world that, that constantly redirects our attention back to ourselves. We live in a world that is, is just hopelessly man-centered. We live in a world where everything comes back to us. We're, 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 we're constantly consumed by thoughts that somehow man is the center of our universe. Social media, the news, TV shows, movies, advertising, even our governments, nearly everything we produce points us back to ourselves. We're the most significant thing here. We are at the center of all of creation. That's the kind of world that we live in. And when you live in that kind of world, it's no wonder that you're consumed by who's going to lead us. It's no wonder that we're consumed by kings and presidents and bosses and leaders. We've adopted a worldview that says we're really everything here. But every now and then we catch a glimpse of the glory of God in this universe. Every now and then something pulls our attention away from ourselves and reminds us that there's something much, much bigger here. Maybe when we go go outside on a moonless night and look up and you just see thousands of stars. 
stars that are an unthinkable distance from us, shining brightly. And it reminds us that we exist in this seemingly infinite universe that we can't even begin to fathom or comprehend. Or we're heading home from work and we see just a magnificent sunset that just proclaims the glory of God. Or we go on vacation and we stand on the beach and look out into the ocean that we can't even see the end of. And it's in those moments that we realize there are things in this world that are much bigger than us. We see photos from space of the earth and we think, really, that's, that's it? Everything we know right here and it's just this tiny little rock in the universe. These moments come into our lives and they're quickly crowded out of our consciousness by the creations of men. And that robs us of thinking about what is bigger than us and it points us back to, to something we can get our heads around. But in this moment, Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. In this moment, Isaiah forgets that human beings even exist because he is consumed by the glory of an infinite and eternal God. And he sees things that he can hardly even express with words. Isaiah saw with great clarity what is really reality. He got, at least for a moment, past everything that we've created that points us back to ourselves. And he saw God. Ultimate reality. And in that moment, he knew that God is the one true king who always sits on the throne. This is a beautiful revelation. And here's his reaction to seeing that. Here's the impact. I want you to see the impact that that had on Isaiah. He said in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 6, And I said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's seen himself and everyone he knows in proper perspective. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And now that Isaiah's perspective on all of life is completely changed, listen to what happens next. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? And Isaiah said what I think any of us would say in that moment. Then I said, here I am, send me. This revelation that Isaiah has shatters every ambition he has for anything else in life. Whatever it is that Isaiah got up that morning thinking he was going to do suddenly didn't matter. Whatever it is that Isaiah hoped his life would look like in five years or 10 years or 20 years from now suddenly didn't matter because he had seen God. He saw the one true king, the one who always sits on the throne. Perhaps he woke up that morning anxious, 
wanting to, you know, turning on the news. Is there any word about the next king yet? What's going to happen to our nation? And by the end of the day, he knew it didn't really matter, did it? I mean, not that it doesn't matter, but it didn't really matter because he saw the king. He saw the one who sat on the throne. He saw what's really true and what really matters. Why do I say all of this? Aren't, aren't we talking about Samuel? We, we are, but, I, but what we're seeing play out in 1 Samuel 16, I think is just beautifully illustrated in Isaiah chapter 6. We see a, a, a glimmer of this truth. God wants Samuel to understand something. He goes to him and he, he says, that's, that's enough grieving over Saul. I want you to go and anoint the next king for me because I have provided for myself a king. This lesson that that God is driving home with Samuel is the same lesson he would drive home with Isaiah, that God is the one true king who always sits on the throne. This is good news to us. This is really good news to us because what this means for us is that regardless of how you feel about the sitting president at any given time, regardless of how you feel about your boss at work, regardless of whether your life is going as you planned or whether it seems like things are completely out of control and and perhaps even beyond repair, like Samuel may have felt in that moment, here's what you need to know. God is on the throne. Trust in Him. Trust that He's good. Trust that He loves you. Trust that he's in control. Have faith in him. Isn't that what the whole Bible is about? To take God at his word and to believe in him. To have faith. That means means to just throw yourself into his plan for your life and say, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how this is ever going to get any better. I don't know how God could do anything with this mess that is my life. And distrust him. Say, but I know he's good. I know he's in control. And I know he loves me. He's on the throne. Samuel is experiencing this reality. Saul has failed. What will this mean for their nation? How will this affect Samuel personally? What about, what about his, the people that he loves? What does this mean for them? Is it possible that the actions of sinful humans will thwart God's will and keep His promises to this nation from being fulfilled? And the answer is, God is on the throne. So he says to Samuel, this is what God says to Samuel, He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel objects to this command, rightly so, because Saul still liked the, the king. <laughs> I mean, Samuel and Saul had this conversation where Samuel made it very clear. He's like, look, dude, God has rejected you. It's not going to be good from here on out. And Saul says, okay, I, I get that, but let's just play it cool right now. Don't let anybody else know. And so Saul's still the king. He still has all the human earthly power that he had before. And God says to Samuel, hey, I want you to go and anoint another king. And Samuel's 
he's not dumb. He's thinking, well, if I do that, Saul's already kind of upset with me. He's probably going to kill me. And he probably would have. And so he objects to God's commandment and, 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 and God convinces him to go. He gives him an out. He says, tell them you're going to offer a sacrifice, which was true. He did, he went, he did go and do that. And it says in verse 5, and he said, this is what Samuel uh, says when he comes to Jesse's family. Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And then listen to this. I'm sure you caught this when, when it was being read earlier. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. God had picked out the next king. And he gives Samuel this instruction to go and anoint him. And as this whole scene plays out, we're taught something very important for us to understand about God. And it's the next thing on your maps. God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. Saul fit the mold of a king physically. The Bible tells us in other places he was a head taller than everybody else. We like guys like that to lead us, especially if you're talking about going into battle. You, I mean, there's, just, there's something about somebody that we physically have to look up to that just puts us in a position to be led by them. That's Saul. Physically, great. He, he fits the mold. He was, he, when, they, when, they saw, when they saw Saul, they were impressed. That's the kind of king they wanted. But God looks at the heart. I love, I love this. When Samuel saw Eliab, he thought, surely this is him. Samuel's no different than the rest of us. There was something about Eliab that, that made Samuel go, this dude's a king. This guy, this guy, now I'm getting excited. You know, I was upset about Saul. I wasn't sure if, I was, if this was going to work out. I was afraid I might get killed if I came. But I could get behind Eliab. If this is, if this is God's next king, we're going to be okay. And God rejects each of Jesse's sons. He says, that's not him. That's not him. That's not him. And then David comes in. Arise, anoint him. For this is he. 
And Samuel pulls out his oil and does what no one else expected. He anoints David to be the next king of Israel. I love it. Dad didn't even bother to get this kid out of the field. He's like, well, if Samuel's here looking for a king, I, I got eight sons, but probably only seven of, seven of them he even wants to consider. And that's who God had chosen. Because the Lord looks at the heart. He, he looks past outward appearances. And he looks to the heart. I can't afford, you know, I think this is, this is the most obvious lesson in this whole chapter, right? I'm not going to spend too much time on, on the applications because I think they may seem a little bit obvious, but I do want to say a couple of things here. The first is this. Obviously, we should pay attention to our hearts more than our outward appearances. God is not fooled by outward appearances and actions. He knows your heart. And I, I think... Um, Probably more than anything else, that should lead to humility. It does for me. That should actually lead to repentance. It does for me. That, that also should lead us to showing grace towards others. God's not so much worried about what's happening on the outside as he is what's happening on the inside. You know, when Jesus, during Jesus' earthly ministry, there were people that were really good at all the outward stuff. They were called Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they had all the, they dressed right, they acted right, they did all the proper things. But Jesus saw right through it. And he told these guys, he said, You're like whitewashed tombs. Look pretty good on the outside. You look like you got everything together on the outside. Inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Here's these guys that base their whole life on being like the quintessential religious people. They were like, worked hard, labored day after day to get everything right on the outside. And Jesus comes along, he says, I see right through you. None of that matters. You look like you know what you're doing on the outside, I see your heart. That should lead us to humility to think that God looks at us this way. He sees right through religious performances. He, and he judges the hearts of men. This should make us pause and ask ourselves what we're doing here. Did, did we come here this weekend just to, to perform religiously? Did we come here to, to do something outward? Or are we here because our hearts need Jesus? Are we here because it matters how we view him inwardly? Are we here because it matters how how we're doing on the inside more than how we're doing on the outside. It's tempting. It's tempting to, to I guess, prioritize outward appearance above inward change. That's just part of our church culture, I think, that we want to we look okay. We want to we convince the other people that we're doing the right things. But there's really only one opinion that matters, isn't there? And that's God who sees the heart. And so that's one thing here. The, the, other, the other thing I would say that we need uh, to, to look at and examine our own hearts, but also that we need to think about how we view other people. Samuel's impressed by Eliab. 
Heck, Samuel was impressed by Saul at one point too. And God is driving home a point into Samuel's heart that he needs to stop judging people by their outward appearance. And and that can go either direction, whether it's good or bad. Sometimes we're overly impressed with other people just because of their outward actions. They look good on the outside. They, They do the right things outwardly. And so we think they must be really something special. We can we can fall into this trap in the church. Let's not be overly impressed with the outward actions of others, even when those actions are good. I think one way to think of this, you know, I mentioned earlier the, the president's funeral this week, which, by the way, I got to watch a good bit of. I thought it was beautiful. It was, you can have your own opinion. It doesn't, it, I'm not trying to force my opinion on I thought it was beautiful the way our nation um, sent off a president that was well-loved in a lot of ways. And I thought it was beautiful the way our nation came together and put a lot of differences aside for a couple of days. And I thought there was just, I was moved. I was encouraged. You know, I was very, I was a very young boy um, when, uh, when Bush 41 was president. And so I really didn't experience that in, in, a, in much, uh, you know, I just wasn't even thinking about it as a young boy. Um, but hearing the stories and hearing about the kind of man he was, you know, the, it, it encouraged me. It inspired me. It made me think about the kind of life that I'm living and, and, and what I could do to, to live a better life. And I, th- I thought it was great. But if I could humbly critique just a part of the message that was conveyed during those two days, because it seemed consistent to me. What seemed consistent to me in, in both of the churches where these funerals were held, as, as men got up and proclaimed what the Bible says about us, if I could just critique that a little bit, what I would say is what they presented really just amounted to religious moralism. And it was completely void of the gospel. Which broke my heart because I thought it was such a beautiful thing and I thought it was such a softball to get up and say what the Bible really says about us. In fact, at one point I heard one of these guys even reference how heaven is now a better place because somebody so good as George H.W. Bush is now there. Can I tell you that is not the gospel? That is far off from the gospel. God looks at the heart And what God sees is the same in every one of us that we don't live up to his standard of holiness. That's kind of a hard pill to swallow. And I I think there's nothing wrong with with when we compare each other to one another to say that that man set a good example. I see absolutely nothing wrong with that. But we have to understand it for what it is. It's kind of like if somebody took out their phone right now, turned on the flashlight, stuck it in front of your eye, you would go, ow, that's really bright. But is it, or is that just relative? It's really bright relative to the light in this room right now. But if I were to take that same light and I were to hold it next to the sun, would it seem bright then? No, it would be completely consumed by the brightness of the sun. And so what we do is, is we compare ourselves to one another and we might say, hey, he's really good. But we have to understand that 
when we're comparing ourselves one to another, we're not comparing ourselves to the standard that God holds us to, which is himself. And there's none of us. Not George Bush, not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not anybody else that lives up to that standard. And that's the gospel message is that we don't have to. That Jesus came and died in our place to close, the, to, to reconcile us to the God who demands holiness. The God who demands perfection and the, the men and women who can never be perfect. Jesus is the one that bridges that gap. That's the gospel message. If George Bush is in heaven, and I have no interest in trying to solve that puzzle or make a judgment on that, I, I probably is, I hope that he is, and, and I think that's great if, if he is. If he's in heaven, it has absolutely nothing to do with how good of a man he was. And it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus came and died for him. And that at some point in his life, he recognized that, And he put his trust in Jesus. And so when we get to heaven, we don't don't make heaven better because we're such good people. Jesus already made heaven perfect. That's the gospel message. And so when we see, uh, let me get back to what we're talking about here today. When, When we look at people who outwardly we're impressed, outwardly we say, whoa, look at that. That's really good. That's really impressive. We should all be more like that. We should be reminded that God sees the heart. And at the heart level, we're all sinners. At the heart level, none of us have lived up to the standard that God has set. And that's why Jesus came. On the other side of this, when we look at people, we can see people who who don't leave us with that warm and fuzzy feeling, people whose actions are quite the opposite. Their outward appearance or their outward actions are very difficult to cope with. People that rub us the wrong way, people that do evil things, people that hurt us and, and aggravate us. Well, in the same way, we should be able to look past those outward actions and see the heart. And what I have found is that oftentimes when you stop and think about why does somebody behave that way, you find that there's trouble inside their heart. And in both cases, the answer is the gospel of grace gets applied to our hearts. In both cases, as I think about people that kind of push us the wrong way or or, are difficult to be around, you know, lots of Lots of examples come to mind, unfortunately, uh, including myself many, many th- days. Um, there's some young guys I've been working with lately who are having great difficulty. I'm going to be vague here, okay? Um, great difficulty getting along with each other. And one of them is, is, let's just say, everybody has difficulty getting along with him. And as I've been working with this young man and, and spending more time around him and getting to know him, I have become convinced that the things that he's doing that pushes everybody else away are actually his heart's attempts to get people to like him. And it's softened my heart to him, but more importantly, it's reminded me of a reality that inwardly what we all need is the gospel of grace. 
inwardly what we all need is the grace of Jesus Christ to come and to fix our hearts. Whether outwardly we're doing good or, and, and everybody loves us or outwardly we're doing poorly and people can't stand us and don't want to be around us, God looks at the heart and He sees the same thing. Sinners who need His grace. God looks past those outward appearances to the heart. Let's keep looking at our passage. Verse 13. We're going to see the, the result of God's choosing and Samuel's anointing of David to be the next king. Okay. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel goes home. His job is done here. He's anointed David as king. The spirit rush upon him. I'm not going to reread the rest of the passage. But we see this really interesting thing play out. Remember I talked about presidents, row. This is where things really get interesting. We got leaders interacting with each other. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to get crazier uh, in the chapters to come. But right now what we have here is that David receives the spirit of God. In the very next verse, it tells us the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And then goes on to say, even so much so, that, that the Lord sent a harmful spirit to torment him. I'm not going to try to answer, I guess, all the questions of, that, that may lead to. But instead, I want to point out the remedy for Saul's affliction, because that's the important part. The remedy for Saul's affliction, which is caused by the departing of the Holy Spirit and now the presence of the harmful spirit... The remedy is that David, the spirit-filled man, now comes and ministers to him. So Saul has the spirit. David receives the spirit. The spirit leaves Saul, and a very different spirit comes to torment him. And so now spirit-filled David goes and ministers to Saul, and it puts Saul at peace. The final lesson here that you see on the map is this, that God gives His Spirit to His servants to accomplish His will. What an interesting story, but what an important point for us to grasp. God gives His Spirit to His servants to accomplish His will. Which kind of leads us into what's really the ultimate message of this chapter. See, we've got to get past what's, what's happening here in the nation of Israel 3,000 years ago, as if this is just some sort of historical lesson. And we've got to see this in the big picture of what God is doing for all people of all time. What is going on here is actually significant for all of us. Because God isn't just giving Israel a new king. He's preparing the world for the king that will later come in the line of David. And that king will be the savior of the world. God, David isn't just chosen to be the king of Israel. He's chosen to be the Old Testament ancestor of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is the physical, earthly incarnation of the God that Isaiah saw seated on the throne. David becomes the placeholder for the rest of Old Testament history. He is the placeholder and the forerunner of God himself who will come to the earth about a thousand years later. 
And that's why when Matthew writes his gospel about the life and ministry of Jesus, he starts with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus comes to be the son of David. What does that mean? It means he's coming to be the king. He's coming to sit on the throne. And so this is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. God has rejected Saul as king, and he has chosen a new king to take his place. And through that new king, Jesus comes. And just like David, Jesus will be filled with the Spirit. Think about this. God anoints David through Samuel and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and for the rest of of David's life, God uses this man. He gives his spirit to his servant to accomplish his will. And, And the things that he does through David are significant. Thousand years later, God sends Jesus. He anoints Jesus and fills him with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this happens when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. What happens when Jesus comes up out of the water after baptism? The Spirit descends on him like a dove. Now Jesus, the Spirit-filled man, exists to do the will of God the Father. Or you could say it this way. David, filled with the Spirit, brought peace to the tormented Saul. But Jesus, filled with the Spirit, offers peace to us all. Because God gives his spirit to his servants to accomplish his will. David David would do incredible things. Filled with the spirit, David would do incredible things. In fact, we're going to see very soon, he's going to defeat Goliath. This giant that nobody else wanted to fight. But Jesus defeated Satan. David went to battle against the enemies of Israel and he won. But Jesus went to the battle against the enemies of us all, sin and death, and he won. David built a palace for himself. Jesus is building one for us to live with him forever. There are a couple other distinctions I want to make between David and Jesus before we close. One, David is still a sinful man. Just because he's filled with the Spirit doesn't mean he's no longer a sinful man. We'll see that play out with Bathsheba and and a few other ways as well as we look at his life together. He's still a sinful man, but Jesus was sinless. Jesus never sinned. Because Jesus was sinless, he was able to suffer and die as a substitute for you. David's kingdom was small and temporary. Jesus' kingdom is massive and eternal. In fact, Jesus would say in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. What kingdom is he talking about? Isaiah 6. He's talking about the one true God. The one true king who sits on the throne always, that's Jesus' kingdom. David received the Spirit to accomplish God's will in his generation. Jesus received the Spirit to accomplish God's will for all generations. Because of that, you're invited into the eternal kingdom. 
And you can get there by trusting in Jesus right now, by believing that what he did when he came and died on the cross as the only sinless man to ever live, he did for you. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, went to the cross to pay for your sins. And you can be saved by trusting in him today. He's the one true king who sits on the throne. He sees your heart, not just your outward actions. And he offers to fill you with his spirit to do his will. There's no greater way to live. Trust in him today and follow him forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.